Howdy, this is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. Listeners have asked us to provide pointers to some of the resources we talk about on the show. We now have links to books and articles referenced in recent podcasts that are available on our website. We also offer full transcripts. Go to jimrutshow.com. That's jimrutshow.com. Today's guest is Joe Henrik from Harvard University, where he is professor and chair of the Department of Human Evolutionary Biology. His research deploys evolutionary theory to understand how human psychology gives rise to cultural evolution and how this has changed our species' genetic evolution. Today, we're mostly going to be focusing on his new book, Weird, The Weirdest People in the World, How the West Became Psychologically Peculiar and Particularly Prosperous. But before we go to his book, we're going to jump back a little bit and talk about one of Joe's earlier works, which was published in 2010, a paper with a very similar name, The Weirdest People in the World. That paper's had a big impact on at least how we think about the world of experimental psychology. So, Joe, talk a little bit about that paper and maybe start off by defining who weird people are and what does weird stand for? Sure. Hey, Jim, it's good to be with you. So WEIRD is an acronym uh, that stands for Western Educated Industrialized Rich and Democratic. And my colleagues at the University of British Columbia, Steve Heine and Aranor and Zion, we coined that term back in the 20 aughts when we began to look at psychological variation across populations. So the three of us came together, we'd each been specializing in different areas of psychology, and we noticed that in our areas of specialization, not only was there substantial variation in, in how people responded to psychology experiments and other ways of measuring psychology around the globe, but that the populations most commonly studied by psychologists and behavioral economists and other experimental researchers anchored the extreme end of the distribution. So not just one population among many, but an extreme and outlier population. So we coined the term weird as a way of consciousness raising about how unusual the most common subjects are in these populations. So this is 95, 96% of the pool of participants in psychological studies. So it really is what dominates the textbooks. Yeah. And as I mentioned in our pre-show chat, I was one of those undergraduate research subjects and probably fell into that same bucket. So yeah. And so it turns out you're not representative of the species. Exactly. And you guys did a bunch of work across a number of behavioral sciences and showed that when you did look more widely, there was a rather vast difference in the results. Yeah. And I mean, the key, one of the key ideas I've been working on is that uh, we got to understand where that psychological variation comes from. And so, I mean, one key idea is that, you know, our minds adapt to the social worlds that we confront, to the institutions and technologies and other things that we have to navigate and that we learn to navigate while growing up. Indeed. You know, one of the areas we talk about a fair amount on the show is the sociology of science. We've had Brian Nozick on talking about the replication failures in psychology and other places. So I'm interested. Your paper, I went back and looked, it's had lots of citations, over 7,000. What's your view on the impact of it on the actual practice of experimental psychology? Yeah, that's been, it's been interesting impact because, you know, it's widely cited and we got the message out there. And in the last decade, uh, new data has 
has come in. So, uh, you know, if I had to double down and rewrite the paper, I could be a lot stronger and a lot more confident. So you'll notice the book title is very similar to the paper title, except I removed the question mark. So it was the weirdest people in the world question mark. And now, now I'm pretty confident about it. So while, the, while this new evidence has come in, it's still the case. So updates. So the, we use data from 2008 when we came up with 96% of students and our participants in psychology are weird. Uh, in you know, 2015, 2016, it's 95%. In developmental psychology, where you think people would be very concerned with the effects of development on thinking and on, the, on cognitive development, uh, it's 92%. So maybe slightly better. In, in evolutionary journals, for example, like evolution and human behavior, it's more like 80%. So, th so they do a bit better and uh, there's anthropologists involved which, which tap broader samples. So overall, the impact hasn't been large in terms of getting psychology to take this question seriously. Although I must say in economics, there's been quite a change. And so economics had the same problem. Behavioral economics was heavily focused on using student subjects and relying on weird populations. Uh, but economic historians and development economists have gotten into the act. And th that's where the big shift has occurred. Yeah, it's interesting. I recently had Sam Bowles on the show, who's an economist, and we talked a lot about the behavioral economic studies he's done all across the world including with a lot of forager people, as well as agricultural, industrial people all over the world. So, you know, there's a good example of the economists have taken this lesson from psychology, perhaps more seriously than the psychologists themselves. Well, yeah, I mean, that's part of the, the origins of the project that we're talking about is in the around 1994, I, I took a behavioral game called the ultimatum game to a remote part of the Peruvian Amazon. And I did, did the experiment there and I got, uh, unexpectedly, I got quite different results because I had been led to believe that the ultimatum game was, you know, reliably producible in diverse populations. There was a paper in a leading economics journal that had, had made that case in 1991. And I brought that back and I actually, you know, S Sam Bowles was involved with a research group along with my advisor, Rob Boyd. And so Sam's group eventually funded us to conduct experiments around the world. And that's probably the research that Sam was talking about. Yeah, very interesting. Anyway, let's jump into your book. You start off with an interesting teaser. You describe a learned behavior which has rewired our brain. Talk about that a little bit and tell us why that's important to the story that follows. Yeah, so the example I use is a skill that the people in a particular society acquire and it thickens their corpus callosum and it gives them specialized circuitry in their left ventral hemisphere. Uh, it gives them longer verbal memory, does a number of other sort of basic psychological process and, and neurophysiological changes to the brain. And I tease the reader a little bit because I don't tell them what the skill is. And it turns out the skill is literacy. So when you learn to read, your brain kind of specializes for reading. And it's just an example that I want to start off with because most people over human history haven't learned to read. So whatever this does to our brains, this is a novel thing that has to do with something our society values, learning to read. And, you know, we, we have schools and we make sure our children learn to read. Uh, and importantly, it, it changes our brain. So I think there's a natural inclination for people to think dualistically, to think that things about psychology and culture are somehow non-material. And that thing, you know, things like brains, of course, are material. But this is a case where something we learn and acquire, uh, it shapes the physical substructure of our brains. And so literacy is a good case where we know about that. And we know something about the history of literacy and when people became literate. 
So it wasn't until the 16th century that widespread literacy began spreading. And it's really just been in the last, the 20th century, essentially, that uh, literacy becomes widespread in most places in the world. Yeah, very interesting. It, you know, it makes clear the idea that the loop between culture and brain, you know, goes in both directions, right? Yeah. And so that's it. So I have a, a, before this current book, I have a book called The Secret of Our Success. And in that book, I make the case that actually the massive expansion in brains that the human lineage experienced was to make our brains kind of cultural acquisition machines. So we've evolved to be particularly good at acquiring, storing, and organizing this large body of cultural information. And part of that involves kind of, you know, embedding these things and, and having some uh, plasticity in our ability to wire up. So we have the motivations and information processing strategies and heuristics that are demanded by the culturally constructed worlds that we have to navigate. So the, the institutions and the values and the other kinds of incentives. And of course, interestingly, applying those brains to the modern world is what we might call an exaptation, since most of our evolutionary history was in much smaller groups and forager groups, you know, 20 to maybe 100 people or thereabouts. And yet these same brains are, at least to some degree, able to create structures that allow us to navigate much more complex societies. Yeah, exactly. And that's part of what I'm trying to unravel is to understand how this, uh, you know, basically a primate like us that has brains that evolved in these smaller scale societies for a very different lifestyle evolves. And so, you know, what's the structure of institutions? Uh, what's the role of families? All, all this, you kind of need to recognize that humans are a product of genetic evolution and that we have certain instincts and whatnot that affect how our institutions are going to function. Yeah, and then, of course, our institutions are then constrained to some degree by both our genetic and cultural inheritances at any given time. Yeah, and so that's one of the key ideas I develop in The Weirdest People in the World. All right, so let's jump in. How are these weird people significantly different than, say, the mean for the world? So there's a number of different domains. So one key domain, the domain I typically start with, is the domain of individualism. So how people think about themselves and the relationships. Uh, so weird people tend to be highly individualistic. They focus on themselves, their own attributes and aspirations over their relationships, roles, and responsibilities. So when you give uh, people the test, and you have, uh, it's called the 20 statements test. So you have a statement, I am, and you have to fill it in. So I am a scientist. Uh, I am a kayaker, what might be ways that I would have filled it in. But I could have also filled it in by saying I'm Josh's dad or Natalie's husband, but with relationships. And so this gives the sense of how people think about themselves. Are they a bundle of attributes, aspirations, and characteristics, or are they a nexus of a set of relationships? So individualism is one thing that seems to vary. And this may be related to a, a, a style of thinking that psychologists have distinguished analytic versus holistic thinking. So when you think about problems, do you break them down into its constituent parts and assign property that, to those parts the way um, physicists would assign properties to particles or psychologists assign personalities to individuals, or do you look at the relationships between things? And there seems to be quite a bit of variation in that between what's called analytic thinking or, or, or holistic thinking. And uh, weird people tend to be at the extreme end of the analytic scale. A final example I'll give you, uh, there, there's many more, but I'll just give you three, is impersonal prosociality. So how inclined are people to cooperate with strangers versus make decisions that benefit friends and relatives and those kinds of things? 
weird people call it nepotism, which has a kind of negative connotation. But in a lot of cases, to not be nepotistic would be to do the immoral thing. And this seems to vary quite a bit around the world. And this is a lot of what you detect when you do behavioral games. So things like the ultimatum game or the public goods game. Yeah, very interesting. We're going to get into a lot of those individual topics later on, but let's start on one that you actually invest a fair amount of words on, and that's the distinction between guilt and shame. Yeah, this is an interesting one because anthropologists, psychological anthropologists have long recognized or made the distinction between guilt-based societies and shame-based societies. And uh, so famously, Ruth Benedict distinguished Japan as a shame-based society. This is back in the 1940s. And the idea is, is that there's, you know, these emotions which affect our social decision-making. And uh, if, you're, if you're concerned with guilt, the way to think about this is that you have a set of personal uh, standards. Now, this doesn't mean the personal standards aren't influenced by society standards, but there might be things like you want to go to the gym or you want to learn how to speak Spanish or something. And that if you're not doing the things you need to do, you're not going to the gym or you're skipping class or whatever, uh, you, you feel guilty. You might feel guilty for not doing it. And But not like other people, your neighbor doesn't care whether you go to the gym or something like that. Whereas a shame-based society, which means what you're concerned about are society standards, about whether you lose face. And shame is interesting because unlike guilt, it bleeds over to other people. So if your brother does something very shameful, the shame actually bleeds over to you in, in a shame society. And we're able to detect this now with the available data. So in the book, I, I provide some, some comparative experiments done with students, but then you can even find it in Google searches. So whether people uh, search on the word shame or guilt, and you know, you, uh, I try to explain this variation across societies. Yeah, one of the things I always thought was interesting on the shame versus guilt dichotomy with respect to its impact on kind of social self-organization is guilt has the interesting aspect that you can feel guilty even if nobody knows about your behavior, while shame, as long as you get away with it and nobody knows about the bad thing you did, you don't pay any cost for it. Right, right. So that's the interesting thing is that uh, shame, the, the, what I find, so I've worked a lot in Fiji trying to understand this question, is that if nobody knows about it, people are still afraid, but what they seem to have is they're afraid that people might find out. So it's kind of like fear of future shame that you suffer. Uh, whereas with guilt, it seems to be a purely internalized thing where you've kind of fallen below your own social standards and you're looking at yourself disapprovingly. That makes some sense. Next topic we'll get into, you mentioned that, hmm, imagine if aliens had come from Alpha Centauri or some such place around 1000 AD, looking at the various states of the civilizations, they may have come to some rather erroneous predictions about the future. Yeah, I think that's a, fu a fun experiment. And in part, I want to emphasize the degree to which, you know, there's cultural change and, and, and populations have changed rapidly in the last thousand years. So if they were to look at Europe, it would have looked like a relative backwater compared to what they saw in the Islamic world, Central Asia and China. So, you know, science, at least a kind of science had been thriving in Central Asia at this point. Islamic society had spread all over the world, large complex societies, of course, in China a lot of developments, technological developments, well ahead of what was being seen in Europe. Um, and so then the question is, you know, it, it would have been hard for them to predict the massive expansion of European populations, the spread of Europeans around the world after 1500, colonialism, uh, and then of course the industrial revolution uh, with rapid innovation, steam engines, and, and then the last 200 years of massive innovation. 
Yeah, but then you make the point. There were some things going on in the Middle Ages that they may not have been able to detect that perhaps, you claim they do, laid the seeds for what came next. Yeah. So uh, in the core argument, there's a core set of arguments in the book as to what led to this psychological transformation. And one of the key things I look at, and this this derives from a, an anthropologist named Jack Goody, but a number of historians have picked, picked up on it as well, people like Michael Mitterauer, arguing that it was the Catholic Church, so one particular branch of Christianity, became sort of strangely obsessed with certain marriage and family practices. So besides, uh, you know, ending polygyny and concubinage and sex slavery, uh, also ending cousin marriage. So in lots of societies, people will marry their cousins, altering inheritance systems in particular ways so that individuals could own their property and bequeath it to future generations, ending clans. And so a number of these religious prohibitions seem to have transformed Europe from kind of complex clans and kindreds and these other kinds of intensive kinship units that we see elsewhere in the world anthropologically into monogamous nuclear families. And at least in some parts of Europe, this is in place by about 1000 CE. And that's when we see what historians call the commercial revolution, the beginning of these charter towns where people join, they have membership, and a proliferation of lots of voluntary associations. So guilds, which originally start as kind of mutual insurance groups, uh, become occupational, universities begin spreading, uh, lots of new monasteries begin spreading, and these are independent and whatnot. And so I make the case that it was the demolition of these independent nuclear families that kind of forced people into a situation where they had to make their way in the world as individuals. And one of the ways they did that was by building these voluntary associations, which have quite a different character than the kind of kin-based and tribal-based organizations that characterize most of human history. Now, one thing I didn't take out of the book, and maybe I missed it, or maybe you just didn't say it, was, was this intentional by the Catholic Church, or was this a unintentional artifact? Well, that's a matter of scholarly debate. Uh, and I think that, I mean, I think the evidence comes down to it not being, I mean, there's no evidence that it was intentional. Certainly nobody could foresee where this was going. There is a quote, uh, which, is, which you'll see in the book, by St. Augustine's. So this is like fourth century Roman antiquity. He notes the kind of basic feature of this, which is that by preventing cousin marriage, you're multiplying ties amongst people who wouldn't otherwise know each other. But with the, then when you look at all these church councils, which made all these marriage and family rules, they're doing it because they think God wants it. And they're worried, you know, God might, God sent a plague and the plague was because he's not happy with all the incest, which is the cousin marriage. Uh, and they're not saying, you know, what we got to do is transform the social structure to create more individualism. That's not one of the main lines of argument. So I don't think there's much of a case. Now, there could be cases in which individual bishops, for example, saw that when they made certain rules like this, their coffers tended to fill a bit more. So there could have been like strategic biases, decisions made at a more local level. But there certainly wasn't any, I haven't seen any evidence of an overall strategy. This is one point where I, I, I part ways with Jack Goody, who I do otherwise rely, rely on for a number of things, uh, is that, you know, he sort of sees this and infers a kind of almost conspiracy uh, that the church was, was doing this intentionally to get rich, because it did result in the church getting a lot of wealth through bequests, and they eventually uh, commoditize cousin marriage and begin selling it. And they also sell divorce through annulments. But they certainly didn't have the big vision that it was going to transform Europe into a more individualistic society. 
Yeah, it seems probably reasonable. Though it is interesting that you can sort of compare that with the institutional structure of the church, which is kind of peculiarly anti-family based, right? The idea of a celibate priesthood that, at least in theory, can't pass on its position to its family. That seems to be another signal that there's something about distrust of kin-based networks and kin-based institutions. Yeah. And so that really comes through in the in the historical material on this is that if you were becoming, uh, you know, if you're joining a monastery or you're becoming a religious, uh, you know, member of the clergy, you've got to dissolve your family ties. And this becomes increasingly important. So what's interesting, like, so in Ireland, Catholicism gets to Ireland early before this whole program gets started. So in Ireland, monasteries and abbeys are clan-owned. They're family affairs because the the kin-based ties hadn't been dissolved by the by the Celtic version of Christianity. It was only this particular Christianity under the Bishop of Rome, under the Pope, that develops this marriage and family program. And so there, eventually, by 1000 CE, you have these kind of independent, almost transnational franchise looking monasteries where they're electing their abbots, you know, there's no none of this family ties and stuff like that, as opposed to this kind of clan patrimony, which you see elsewhere in Christianity. Oh, I did not know that. It's interesting. Let's jump in a little bit and talk about in some detail what kin-based networks and kin-based institutions look like in a comparison to our weird world. Yeah, I think that's important because uh, for many listeners, they might not be familiar with and how important this is. So when I first got in, I, you know, I'm a, my background is in cultural anthropology. So uh, I did my undergraduate MA and, and PhD in cultural anthropology. And one of the things that always impressed me when I first got into this, which is why, I was asking myself, why are these anthropologists so obsessed with kinship? I mean, you read all these ethnographies, it always will go on and on about the kinship network. You have to learn all this specialized language, they're easy complex complicated diagrams, because how important could that be, right? Isn't it about the kind of economics of daily life and maybe religion's important? But, you know, when I went to actually live in societies, I, I found that anthropologists are obsessed with this because people are obsessed with this, that when they're organizing their life, they're thinking about and maintaining these kin networks. When you ask, like, so if I'm in Fiji and I, we need someone to do some, say, carpentry work or something, I was building a laboratory at one point, you know, you immediately get recommendations about people's cousins who have skills. So that when they think, they're thinking, you know, who in my, in my family network can I, can I benefit through this? <laughs> you know, I was going to pay them. Uh, and so it's just a different way of thinking about the world in a very relational way of thinking about the world. And in the book, I, you know, put together historical and anthropological evidence to make the case that actually there's new genetic evidence showing this as well, that it's, you know, these kin-based institutions are ways in which as agriculture began to spread, people were controlling territory by, you know, moving to patrilineal or matrilineal clans as a way of building more dense networks that had greater solidarity and uh, could cooperate more effectively. Yeah, that was an, an interesting question I had as a follow-up, which is forager societies seem to be less strongly structured on broader kinship relationships. At least what I've read is that, surprisingly, forager bands are rather dynamic. People came and went, merged and split, etc. And it wasn't until settled agriculture where land became a valuable and inheritable product that this kin-based culture kind of took its full form. Is that in congruence with your views? That's what I think the evidence currently supports. Uh, so it's not a, it's not anything linear, right? 
So mobile hunter-gatherers definitely maintain these looser networks. Now, they're, they're, it's, it's not the same as you know, the kind of individualistic world that, that we live in because people still rely on kin networks. But for example, lots of foragers have taboos against marrying close cousins because that forces people to marry more distant relatives, which gives them important extensive ties. So for example, if there's a shock and we have a drought and our water hole dries up, we have relationships through various mechanisms to other bands living in other places. So we can go visit our in-laws or some other relative that we've built one of these distant relationships with. And, you know, this, this obviously has kind of risk, risk and economic, uh, it's economically important. So that does seem to be something you see in lots of different mobile forager groups. Now, it's also not something we should just think of as changing through time, because no doubt in the Paleolithic, as in the Holocene, there were sedentary hunter-gatherers who might have controlled uh, salmon runs or some other valuable resource. And you, know, you may have seen the development of this more intensive kinship in those places. The interesting thing about agriculture was it was this, this economic package, which you could take over large swaths of land where without agriculture, you know, those could have only been inhabited by mobile groups. That makes sense. Interesting. Yeah. And of course, the Bible is full of obsession about kinships and lineages and land. I just did my once every 10 years rereading of the Pentateuch plus Joshua, even though I'm a non-believer in such things, I do find it interesting to refresh my memory of the basis of it. And once again, it was astounding how much of it is laying out these kinships and the relationship to the land and you know, the concept of the jubilee is basically a mechanism to make sure that the land can't be alienated from the kinship lineage for very long, etc. It's really quite remarkable and very different from how we think about the world. Yeah. I mean, the Old Testament, the Torah, I mean, it's very interesting because it's pretty much, if you look at that in, in contrast to, you know, in, in comparison to anthropological data, it's, it's pretty standard issue patrilineal kinship. I mean, you know, they even have leveret marriage where, you know, if, you're, if your husband dies, you marry his brother, um, which is something, one of the first things the church banned in, the, in late antiquity. Interesting. What are some of the attributes of these kin-based societies in terms of you know, how people work with each other, who they listen to, how policing of behavior happens, all those kinds of things? Yeah. So I've described the relationship. Uh, and, you know, there's a lot of, so one thing to emphasize is there's lots of interesting variability, but there's typically some kind of traditional hierarchy. Uh, there's often authority based on age and being male. Um, of course, that does vary to a degree between patrilineal and matrilineal societies. Uh, the, your kinship group is so important for for many reasons because it's usually this the centerpiece of, of the organization of economic production. So you work with members of your family or at least some set of relatives for economic production. Crucially, they're your social safety net. So if something bad happens and you get injured, for example, that's the people you rely on. They're your old age security. So you get old, who's going to take care of you? Your spouse dies, who's going to take care of you? All these things are supplied by the kinship group. So that's why it was so transformative when the church begins breaking all these things down, because then people had to figure out alternative ways to take care of old people, to provide mutual insurance, to organize economic production. And that's where these voluntary associations get involved. 
Okay. And, and so, yeah, let's contrast that with what a non-kinship-based society starts to look like. Obviously, these things don't happen discontinuously. They evolved over time. But what are some of the high watermarks of you know how we live in a non-kin-based society? Well, interestingly, so people people often think of feudalism, so the kind of classic European feudalism, manorialism, as not related to the kind of individualism and the, the economic growth that came later. But it, it was a response to it, or at least I think it was a response to it, in that it was these individual lords building personal relationships with other individuals, non-kin. So these were non-kin, they were sacred relationships and they were personal relationships, but it does seem to have been a response to not being able to use a giant clan network, not being able to use polygynous marriage to build lots of additional family ties. So I think that was partially a response. And then you get these guilds, which guilds obviously become increasingly important throughout the Middle Ages, but the early guilds, so were like 900, 1,000, 1,100, um, are the social safety net. So there, this is the group that everyone swears to like help the other guy if he gets injured, um, you know, help them in times of need if they have too many children and you know they're not able to feed them, uh, and then of course old age and stuff like that. The church also steps in and begins doing this. So the church's activities create lots of orphans and widows, which then the church creates mechanisms to take in widows. Uh, women can join the church instead of getting married, and orphans often become some of the, you know, some of the most loyal, I guess, members of the church because they're raised within the church community. So that's some of the ways in which it, it gets restructured. Another thing you talk about is that in a non-kin-based society, there's a special emphasis on you know our honing of our own special attributes and using those as essentially social capital to build our social network. Yeah, so that's the, the one of the key ideas is this distinction between a relational society. So in a relational society, you're born into one of these dense networks, and the way you make your way in the world, it, I mean, all your relate most of your relationships are preset. And if you're going to make a new relationship with somebody who you don't already have a relationship with, what makes them trustworthy and a, a kind of a reliable partner is the fact that you share other ties. So you know, it's your uncle's you know, your uncle has a relationship with him or it's your uncle's cousin or something like that. And that makes them more reliable. And the more of those intersecting ties you have with your, your new partner, the more they're likely to be trustworthy and whatnot. In a world where those ties have been dissolved or they're just very limited, you're relying more on disposition. So you're looking for people who have something, some skill or some ability or something that you, that's complementary to you. And you're looking for dispositions like trustworthiness, honesty, all those kinds of things. So in the more individualistic world, you have to cultivate and advertise what makes you special because you're trying to find relationships because you don't have a lot of pre-built ones. Uh, and you also have to distinguish yourself. So why would someone want to have a relationship with one person versus another? Whereas you, that's, there's much less pressure on that in the world of relationships because mostly what's making you are these things you get at birth, these, these set of family and ex extended family ties. Yeah, so one might say that the kinship-based societies might be less stressful. On the other hand, there's less incentive to develop your human capital, as the economists might say. Yeah, so they're definitely less, I mean, my impression is, is that they're less stressful in terms of developing this sense of uniqueness and cultivating that uniqueness. There, there's, it could be more stressful in the sense that people worry a lot about shame. And uh, there's lots of little rules and things you don't want to do. So, you know, it, it's, it's just more, it's, it's, it's a bit nuanced. Yeah. And just sort of quite different, you know, static versus dynamic, I suppose, is another way to look at it. 
Another interesting thing about the differences between the two kinds of societies is that I was not really aware of this and thought it was very interesting, is that there's a quite fundamentally different view of justice around intent in particular. Could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, that was uh, that's a surprise to many because I think a lot of weird people have a strong sense that if you're judging someone morally, one of the key facts you want to know is what their mental states are. So what their intentions are and what their beliefs are. So for example, in Western law, there's all these ways to mitigate someone's crime if they didn't intend to do it. Of course, that can change things a lot. Or if they had a false belief, they had, they're, they're operating under a mistaken impression, uh, that can make them less guilty. Whereas doing, you know, my colleagues, Clark Barrett and a number of other researchers, a team of anthropologists did experiments around the world. And we found that societies that had these intensive kinship structures, when they were judging strangers, so people outside the kinship network, they didn't seem to worry or they, they actually varied a lot. So they went from some societies where people didn't use intentions at all in judging someone's guilt for, say, a theft. Uh, to to the extreme, to weird people at the other extreme end where intent really dominates the, the, ju- the moral judgment. And this fits with a lot of what we know about history, early European law codes, and the anthropology of law around the world. So if you look at early European law codes, there were all these penalties that were, you know, vergelt. So you had to pay some amount of money for, for doing crimes against someone in another clan. And there the intentionality is often not taken into account. It's just, if you killed him, we don't want your story about why you killed him. It's just, you owe this amount of money. Uh, and so, yeah, so intent becomes increasingly important over European history. Uh, and, and, and in lots of anthropological societies, you see the same kind of thing where intentions aren't taken into account. It's kind of very parallel to the discussion in the philosophy of ethics between the arguments around deontological versus consequential ethics, which are kind of very similar in their outlines. Yeah, yeah, you're so you're thinking about things like like trolley problems. Exactly, right? So I think it plays a role in 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 people's uh, inclinations to go with the different responses to a trolley problem. Okay, the next topic we're going to talk about, get a little bit closer to the current world, is that your work's found that more individualistic countries are also richer, more innovative and more economically productive. Yeah, so well, one of the things I wanted to explain in the book is why the Industrial Revolution occurred in Europe and not these other places which looked, uh, you know, you go back to my my alien observer from orbit in the year uh, 1000, he would have, I mean, I, the, the alien observer would have bet on China or uh, the Islamic world or something like that. So why did it occur in, in Europe? And Uh, In my previous book, The Secret of Our Success, I make the case that a lot of human, what I call cumulative cultural evolution or innovation is driven by the collective brain. So most new ideas are actually recombinations of old ideas. And what you need to do is have a large population where people can make lots of mistakes, do lots of experiments, and then recombine ideas from diverse minds, different ways of approaching it drawn from different fields or from different populations to create new recombination. And I make the case that what happened in Europe was that the populations became increasingly interconnected for a bunch of reasons. One was people were increasingly literate. So they were sharing information 
uh, through and the printing press was spreading and this was allowing people to be more interconnected. But they were also more trusting of strangers and there were large flows of commerce among European urban areas. And so this was creating a larger and more interconnected brain, which was capable of creating more new recombinations. And as when European populations expanded around the world, they also began to get ideas from different places, bring them back to Europe and, and create new kinds of innovations. So this is what I argue that this leads to uh, more rapid innovation and to economic growth in Europe. Yeah, and thinking back to the earlier conversation we had about honing one's own special attributes, you know, thinking about it as an agent-based modeler, which is one of the things I do along the way, you know, one could see that, especially in a world that is becoming more interconnected and there are more things potential to learn and to filter out what's useful and what's not for one's own personal situation, one could see how that could lead to a bootstrapping mechanism, particularly as knowledge starts to propagate with the invention of the printing press and such. Yeah. And so, I mean, part of individualism is the idea of being an inventor comes up and people want to distinguish themselves by uh, being the inventor of things. So one of the interesting historical markers of, of this kind of thing is that people begin naming inventions like the fallopian tubes after the first discoverer or one of the inventors along the way. Now, as a scientific matter, I'm pretty critical of the approach of naming things after the inventor because there's usually very rarely one inventor. Uh, I probably point out in the book that Edison, you know, it, it was the 43rd patent or something like that on light bulbs. And there'd been a whole bunch of previous light bulbs. And, you know, in the, in England, the inventor of the light bulb is Swan and in Russia, it's another guy because these ideas were percolating around and people were just experimenting with lots of different combinations. So, you know, giving all the credit to Edison or, you know, pick your favorite inventor, Alexander Graham Bell, um, isn't, doesn't capture the historical process, but there is this desire to, to give someone credit for it. And this practice of, of naming things by, by inventor or discoverer starts spreading uh, sometime after 1500 in Europe. And even notions of plagiarism begin spreading. Uh, I think plagiarism comes from Latin to kidnap. And so previously people weren't worried about kidnapping others' ideas, but soon they begin to worry about that and then eventually put it into law. It also became very important in the evolution of Western science. You go back and read some of the old papers from the Royal Society journals, et cetera. These amazing arguments about priority. You know, who wrote this first, right? In fact, one of the reasons for the journal was to establish a mechanism to determine who had priority on these new ideas. Yeah. And that's the kind of thing that it's, it's very, you're going to get that most strongly in a society where people are individualistic. They want to distinguish themselves. They want to set themselves apart. And the priority on deferring to tradition, deferring to elders has been weakened by this point. So one of the things we were talking about, the, the things that come from intensive kinship, one is respecting elders and the ancestors. And those things get very important. And that you can see the effect of people like Aristotle and Plato in Europe, and they had a great deal of respect. But part of what happens with the emergence of science is people decide it's okay to say that Plato and Aristotle were wrong. And that, you know, eventually they just stop even referencing them anymore. It's, you know, it, they became, it turned out they were wrong about a great many things. And so. Yeah, that's part of this bootstrap mechanism as I'm starting to, you know, pull these threads together to sort of envision how the West ended up emerging as this powerhouse over a very short period of time. One of the important things about science that, that I, I draw some threads together at the end of the book, but science is kind of a voluntary association of individualists, right? So everybody wants credit. 
And we have these journals that assign credit and date stamp everything to try to resolve all those issues. But we ultimately operate as, you know, we have peer review, right? And whether something gets published and gets the stamp of approval kind of depends on the judgment of the community. And, you know, different individuals have different weight depending on their status in the field, but it's, it's kind of a, it's a voluntary association of, of individualists. Yeah, with a sense-making mechanism, as we'd call it, through peer review, or though interestingly, in more and more science, people are bypassing peer review and publishing directly on the archives. For instance, in physics, almost everything is now pre-published on the archives in machine learning to a slowly increasing degree in biochemistry. So uh, there's some evolution in that institutional form towards even more individualism. Yeah, yeah. It'll be interesting to see whether that is a positive or negative effect. I I don't have a a take at this point myself. It doesn't seem to negatively impact physics, but, you know, physics is its own strange discipline where results are more cut and dried, where things are murkier, particularly in the social science and the biological science. Yeah, time will tell. Let's dig into some of the experimental results that have been found when you compare weird to non-weird populations and how they differ. One of the ones I found kind of interesting was the patience and self-control test, the famous marshmallow test. Yeah. So uh, in that part, I bring together two different kinds of data. One is the famous marshmallow test where you put a kid in a room, you give them a marshmallow, and you tell them if they're willing to wait till the experimenter returns, that they'll get a second marshmallow. And then the measurement is uh, basically how long they're willing to wait. So the experiments vary. Sometimes the experimenter comes in after 15 minutes. And so if the kid's able to wait the full 15 minutes, they get the second marshmallow. A bunch of kids just eat it right away. And then another group, you know, waits some period of time between when the experimenter leaves in the 15 minutes. And this seems to be predictive. I mean, you know, there's a little bit of controversy surrounding this stuff, but um, in general, it seems to be predictive of the future, staying in school, saving money, avoiding drugs. And this seems to be related to what economists uh, measure as temporal discounting. So if you give people choices between a smaller sum of money now and a larger sum of money at a later date, There's a point at which people trade these off, and that gives you a measure of their temporal discounting. And that seems to predict a lot of the same things. And there's tremendous global variation in the uh, the variation in this. And it's probably affected by lots of factors, but I think that the intensive kinship stuff we talked about is certainly one of them because in a relational society, you often store things you don't have bank accounts, right? So you store things in the goodwill uh, and in the relationships. So by giving gifts in this, in, in that kind of world, or having experiences together, you're you're investing in your future by strengthening these ties of the individuals that'll eventually help you or your kinfolk in the future. Uh, whereas in a world without lots of those ties, where you can have a secure bank account, you might be better off to put it in the bank account. So it favors distinct strategies in this regard. Interesting. What are some of the other results, you know, field results that have come up that support these strong outlier tendencies of weird folk? Well, we talked about the use of mental states. Um, One interesting one is called the passenger's dilemma in which uh, what you do is, so it's a, it's a vignette experiment and what you have, you're, you're asked to imagine yourself, you're in a car with a friend, your friend is driving too fast in, you know, say a 25 mile an hour zone, a bit recklessly, and they hit someone. And their lawyer tells you, you know, if you testify that they were going under the speed limit, your friend will get off. 
And if you, but if you don't, then he might go to jail or something. And so your friend asks you to testify. And so then the subject is asked, uh, you know, was this okay for your friend to ask this? And would you testify in court? And, uh, you know, this, this is an interesting dilemma because it, it, there's two virtues here, right? One is we probably everyone thinks that being loyal to your friend and helping your friend is important, but also there's these impersonal rules like not lying in court, telling the truth and whatnot for the justice system to function correctly. And there's quite a bit of variation in this around the world and, and whether people kind of lean towards the virtue of friendship, building those relationships with people who are going to help you later, or, you know, going with the impersonal rule and, and subjecting one's friends to possible jail time. So that, that varies a lot around the world and, and can be predicted by the intensity of kinship. So the more societies traditionally have had these intensive kinship structures, the more inclined people are to, to uh, help their friends. And that makes some sense. Another one is, um, so if you've taken a course in social psychology, there's something called the Ash Conformity Test, where individuals come into a room and there's some confederates of the experiment are working there, but the person thinks that those are just other subjects. And then they have to match, you know, this is a, just a perception test, like which this line here matches which of these other lines in terms of the length, and there's a series of other lines. And you do this a bunch of times, and on certain critical trials, the confederates give the same wrong answer. And the question is, how often does the subject, in a, in a, in a test where they would normally get it right 97, 98% of the time, how long do they go along with the other people? So it's a measure of peer conformity. And this varies quite a bit around the world and can be predicted by uh, this intensity of kinship. So in the more individualistic societies with monogamous nuclear families, uh, you, you get people are least likely to go along with the peers. Yeah, that makes sense. And again, if we come back to this bootstrapping social evolution, one could see how that in the era of the emergence of science and knowledge may well make weird societies more efficacious in sorting out the shit from the Shinola, shall we say. Yeah, because it's more okay to disagree with the current majority, basically. Exactly. You know, till 1500 or thereabouts to disagree with Aristotle meant death pretty much, right? Even Galileo got into lots of trouble for it a little later than that. But now that's frankly the whole game of science. One makes one's reputation by saying, hell no, this elder is full of shit, right? I've got the right answer. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the game. And in a society where that is sanctioned, the bootstrap of creation of real knowledge is not going to work as well. Yeah. So that's, the, that's a, a key part of the case that I make about why you can get variation and innovation across countries and why something that seemingly as disconnected as kin-based kin norms could actually cash out in, the, in differences in the likelihood of innovation across societies. Interesting. Another one that you talk about some lab results on is the analytical versus holistic thinking. I'm thinking particularly about how people evaluate images or scenes. Yeah, so that's one of the ways. It's called the triad tasks, and it's one of the ways that psychologists use to measure this holistic versus analytic thinking. So a typical triad might be, so they give you a picture of a rabbit, and you have to say whether the, the rabbit goes with the dog or goes with the carrot. And if you're putting together things analytically, you say, well, two animals, rabbit and dog, put those together. If you're thinking more holistically, functionally, you'll say, well, rabbits eat carrots, so you put the rabbit with the carrot. So you give participants a bunch of these, and they make, they make one or the other choice, and then you give them a score, but it's a percentage of how many of their responses were holistic or analytic. And that goes from, you know, 
some populations are 60, 70, 80% in terms of analytic cancers and some are zero. You know, since you, <laughs> I worked in this population in rural Southern Chile where it was hard to get anybody to give a non-holistic answer. Interesting. And I wonder what that means. Any thoughts on what kind of society you get if you're mostly thinking holistically versus analytically? Well, I think it. Ha- I think of it as kind of your first. If you want to explain something, what's your what's your first go to explanation? And I think that what you try to do, if you're an analytic thinker, is you say, well, what are the relevant categories here? Um, so we, you know, we've talked about physics, and so physicists like to define types of things. So you got your types of particles, and then we assign some property to those particles, and then everything else. You know, once you assign the properties, then everything else goes from that. Um, Whereas if you're looking for the other strategy, you're, you're thinking a bit more concretely and you're looking for the relationships between the objects that don't involve putting them into categories and assigning them properties. Okay. That's interesting. So it would seem based on the evidence that analytical thinking has been more efficacious in bootstrapping societies forward. I wonder what we miss though. Yeah. So that, that's the key. And I, I think you know, in the book, I discuss the kinds of, uh, so when you break things down, the tricky part is always figuring out how to reassemble them. So I think we've seen science make rather fast progress in thinking about uh, individuals and properties, but then thinking about things like networks has taken longer because then you got to start theorizing the relationships and then how the relationships affect the properties and it gets you know can get complex. So things like agent-based modeling or something like that is an effort to kind of take the next step in complexity and move things up to begin to think about the relationships between things. But it often starts by assigning properties to agents and then going from there. Yeah, of course, that's very much what our work at the Santa Fe Institute's all about is attempting to you know, look at those emergent phenomena from the reductionist agents when you put them in play, agents or ideas, and the emergent complex phenomena that come from that. So that's, I would say, a little bit more holistic thinking, but yet doesn't abandon the analytical thinking about trying to understand what are the lower level drivers of the more simple elements in the system, I would suggest, or at least we suggest at Santa Fe, that the way forward is kind of a tension in balance between analytical and holistic thinking. Uh-huh, uh-huh. That may be the next level, and that societies that figure that out will outbeat those that are anchored on either analytical or holistic thinking. A couple other items that you discovered, or you mentioned at least, that are different across the dimension of kin-based and non-kin-based, or weird and unweird at least, is free will and moral universalism. Could you tell us about those a little bit? Yeah. So, uh, well, the moral universalism is just, it's intended to be a measure of the degree to which people think about um, kind of general principles or properties that would apply to all of humanity versus focusing on things like um, in-group loyalty or traditional hierarchies. Uh, and so there's a psychologist named John Haidt working with Jesse Graham who has outlined five different foundations for human morality, did a kind of a big inductive project in which they tried to identify the major dimensions of human morality that kind of explain some large chunk of human morality, and they came up with five. And if you break those five down, they really, uh, much of it is actually two dimensions, going from this moral universalism where people are concerned about justice and fairness and equality, and another dimension where it's about in-group loyalty, a bit of tribalism, uh, religious purity folds into that hierarchy, you know, and then that varies according to this this dimension of kinship that I mentioned. 
Of course, it also varies strongly just within the United States itself. I'm quite familiar with Haight's work. And, you know, he points out that the distinction between the two is a relatively good predictor of, you know, team red versus team blue politics in the United States. Yeah. So we've been looking at that because one of my colleagues uh, in Harvard economics, Ben Anke, has shown that the, that Heidian measure of moral universalism versus parochialism uh, predicts voting for Donald Trump in 2016 and 2020 even over and above, once you statistically remove, you know, being Republican or having previously the county pre- having previously voted for uh, Romney or McCain or something like that. So it's actually the extra support that a county gives to Donald Trump over and above being Republican can be explained by this moral universalism. So we've been looking at the kind of networks and mobility and trying to explain the psychology based on the variation among U.S. counties in networks and mobility. And, you know, our, our work is still preliminary at this point, but we find that counties that have lower relational mobility, stronger kin ties as measured by census last names, seem to be more moral parochial or less, less moral universalism. So it, it, it tests the same theory, just kind of looking a little bit more general at relationships. How about the other one, free will? That's one I would not have necessarily thought about as residing on this continuum. Yeah, so free will is just the degree to which you see your actions as having an effect on your choices as being important and central. So part of being an individual in many ways is is believing that the things you decide can have impacts on your world, can shape your relationships and, and you know shape your future. Some of that you get just from having these world religions. So that includes Christianity, but also Islam and other religions seem to increase people's understanding of free will or, or the role of free will. But then it gets, even, it gets particularly stronger as you get these more individualistic societies and the role of a person's own choices in affecting the world. That makes some sense. Now, you know, you make the claim and, you know, the evidence is certainly strongly correlated between weirdness and prosperity. What about causality? Could it be that, I know you dig into this, that prosperity causes non-kin relationships rather than vice versa? What's the evidence that the causality points the other way? Well, so, uh, I mean, that's a great question and something that we've worked on and thought about a lot. So uh, it's certainly, I mean, I think it's the case that you know, with the spread of um, secular institutions, you know, democratic governments, um, you know, f- f- forms of corporations, kind of modern corporations, the rising urbanization in lots of societies, that actually does create a push to break down uh, kin groups. So if you have a, you know, a social insurance system, uh, or you have wage employment where people don't have to rely on this kin group for their economic production. They can move to an urban area. Things like unemployment insurance, anything that reduces the kind of functional role of kin groups will weaken the kin groups. In lots of places, they, they've imposed things like you can only have monogamous marriage. So that that puts a pressure against polygynous marriage and weakens the ability of that to have a role. Laws about cousin marriage actually vary quite a bit, but if you have laws against cousin marriage, which lots of countries adopted by copying European civil codes, that can have an effect on your kin institutions. So in that sense, it's been going against that economically. But my question was, where did all this get started? And historically, I you know I think there's evidence to suggest that this this church's program, this transformation of European families long precedes any economic growth. So there's a whole area of of demographers and uh, historians who work on demography suggesting that Europe had a unique family uh, pattern by 1500. 
which by most people's estimates is before of the substantial economic growth in Europe. So the kinship stuff certainly precedes temporally the big economic expansion. So it's hard to tell a causal story that goes the other way. Interesting. And there was some, an interesting historical demographic point that you brought up, which is the distance from a cathedral town actually predicts a few things. Yeah. So uh, I think the analysis you're thinking of is we what we did is we created a database of the bishoprics as they spread through Europe. And what we show, actually, you might have another analysis in mind, but let me just put this one out there, uh, is that if your region of Europe was exposed to a bishopric for more centuries, you have a more individualistic psychology today. The population does. Uh, also less conforming. We talked about the, the conformity with the ASH test and greater trust in strangers and greater greater inclinations of fairness towards strangers. So we have four dimensions of psychology we're able to measure from the European Social Survey and link that to the amount of time a European region has been under uh, a Catholic bishopric. Yeah, and yeah, that's what I meant when I said cathedral town, because the cathedral town is the seat of bishopric. So yeah, that was, I thought, a very subtle analysis that you know, made a pretty strong point for causality pointing in the way that you were arguing for. Yeah. And the other, you know, there's, so since I wrote the book, it's inspired some, some of my colleagues to do additional analyses. So there's an economist uh, at the University of British Columbia, Squires is, is the first author or one of the author's names. And uh, they've done an analysis where they looked at US states adopting laws against cousin marriage in the 19th and early 20th century. And they're able to show that uh, states that had high cousin marriage that then subsequently adopted laws against cousin marriage had greater economic prosperity over the coming over the coming decades, uh, so, so they're able to get a kind of causal type analysis, the kind economists do, uh, that shows the 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 causal effect of of cousin marriage laws. Of course, another effect which you guys discovered is that university students are more weird, even if they don't live in weird societies. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So when you when you compare university students, whether you're looking at personality measures or measures on the IM Kayaker test you find the university students who, you know, it's not surprising, like often university students leave their, their natal home, their village, their families, they might live at the university. The university is a European institution. The educational system encourages individualism. There's rules against plagiarism. You know, the whole institution is, is a very individualistic institution. So even when these are in societies that aren't very Western, they tend to Westernize the, the populations that attend to them. And we see that in the psychological data obviously shows that there's lots of things that drive this style of mind that we call weirdness from the long-term and perhaps fairly subtle like cousin marriage rules to things that perhaps do something similar in a much shorter period of time, such as you know the institutions of modern science delivered in a non-weird society. Yeah. And uh, I mean, one of the things I try to emphasize in the book, uh, which I hope people don't overlook, is that, you know, these things can be changed relatively quickly. So if you look at, uh, I, I use second generation immigrants in the book to illustrate the cultural nature of these processes, because what you can do is our analyses where we look at, say, immigrants, second generation immigrants in Europe. So these are people whose parents came from another country, but they've grown up entirely in the European country, went to European schools, you know, perfect fluent speakers of the language. Uh, but you can still predict something of their behavior using the kinship intensity or the church exposure of the places where their parents came from. So that, you know, that can, that shows the power of this affecting this. But it's also worth emphasizing that these effects are echoes. So they're smaller than you see with the parents and they disappear a generation or two later. So the, the effects aren't, aren't long lasting. 
Uh, let me just toss out a counterexample, just get your thoughts to it. Are you familiar with the work of Edward Banfield and his work on what he calls amoral familialism in Southern Italy? Yeah. I mean, uh, I do know that work, and it's actually inspired a lot of work in economics. Uh, I read it as an anthropologist. Uh, it's an ethnography. Uh, but, you know, we think that we can account for some of those patterns using this approach. So people tend to think Italy is a great case because it has this interesting sociological pattern where the North is quite different from the South. But if you look back into the history of Italy, the North actually experienced, and, and of course, Italy's all Catholic now, right? Or at least... The church is, was, has been present in Italy for a long time. But if you look back into the history of Italy, the North experienced a quite different history, and it was under the Carolingian Empire. So in the case, the historical case I make in the book, the biggest, earliest, and strongest dose of this marriage and family program, this transformation of the family, was in the Carolingian Empire, because the Carolingian rulers team up with the Pope and the Catholic Church and begin a series of reforms and changes that really impose this marriage and family program. And they controlled Northern Italy, so that gets the full dosage of this. Meanwhile, Southern Italy, Sicily, Sardinia are not under this, and they're not getting this. There are parts of it under the Byzantine Empire, so Greek or, uh, Orthodox, uh, and under Islamic rule for periods of time. So if you look at the rates of cousin marriage across Italy, it, it varies. It's, it's quite low in the north, higher in the south, and quite high in Sicily. So this is where you know, the family is very important. So thinking about things like the mafia is traces to Sicily and southern Italy, uh, whereas in northern Italy, you have the Renaissance, the rise of the banking industry, those kinds of things. We can explain variation amongst modern-day Italians in their sort of trust in strangers or their willingness to give blood to strangers using the, uh, the amount of cousin marriage in the mid-20th century in the Italian provinces. Mm, very good. Yet more evidence that seems to support your story. Let's go on to our last topic now. It's, you know, actually touches on your professional field of human evolutionary biology. What's the evidence or lack of evidence for what impact the emergence of weirdness in the West has had on the genetics of the people in the West? Yeah. So, I, you know, and a lot of times when people uh, deal with these big questions about the poverty and wealth of nations, they avoid the, the genetics questions because the sort of sociology of the field is you don't actually have to tackle it. But I feel that that leaves the door open uh, for non-scientific accounts of, of how the role of genetics. So I wanted to take the question really seriously and consider the possibility that some of these changes, these changes in institutions and culture uh, of the kind of the Greg Clark is thinking about, the economist Greg Clark, and asked to, to wonder whether this could have affected genes leading to uh, genetic variation amongst populations that might be linked to psychology. And at this point, there's no, gen there's no reason to think that there's genetic variation among populations that explain any of this psychological variation. But in fact, I think the argument would go the opposite direction. And what I lay out in the last chapter is that the kinds of processes I'm describing occur mostly in the rapidly growing urban centers, towns, cities, free cities uh, in different parts of Europe. And that's where a lot of this action occurs in terms of the development of representative governments and the, these guilds and well, not so much monasteries, but other kinds of voluntary associations. 
And the thing that I think gets forgotten is that the European cities up until the last few centuries were death traps, right? These were places where people got sick and got plagued. So people were moving into the cities. And in order to grow, cities had to have a large inflow of people from the rural areas because some of them were going to die from various epidemic infectious diseases. Uh, and so this would have, if there was genetic variation in these psychological traits, it actually would have been selected against because people were moving into these uh, towns and cities, which weren't healthy until, you know, public health gets started in the early 19th century and then really doesn't get rolling until the end of the 19th century. So it was only in the 20th century that cities become, you know, healthy places to be. In fact, cities are actually uh, in the West are healthier than the countryside, at least uh, urbanites are healthier than people in the countryside. But that's a relatively recent phenomenon and, and would have been the opposite way in the past. So if anything, the genetic story goes in the opposite direction that one might think. I found that to be a really interesting and, as you say, kind of counterintuitive result that you're able to find. And this happens to be an area that I know a little bit about. It turns out that the cities in the West were net killers until 1900. Only then did natural increase in Western cities actually get above zero. Because again, you know, one of the great surprises to me of intellectual history, you know, the germ theory didn't really get nailed down until 1870. So you really couldn't do scientific public health. I mean, you could do trial and error public health before that, and they made some progress. But until you understood the germ theory, it was really kind of hard to do high power public health. And so it was until 1900 that the city stopped being net killers makes one wonder if in the future one will start to see some genetic coevolution between weirdness and genes as those you know differential reproductive rates start to point the other way yeah the only thing is that one interesting kind of uh, I, I don't I mean I don't know which way this is going to go and ultimately but urbanites as I understand it still have fewer kids ah that's probably true so although mortality the mortality side of the equation is is off or uh, has switched. The, the number of kids hasn't switched. Yeah. So I think it's the bottom line from that is that it shows us the power of cultural evolution that really doesn't require any significant amount of genetic bootstrapping to go quite a long way. Right. And they don't have to go in the same direction. Absolutely. Yeah. A good point. Well, I'd like to thank you, Joe. And maybe unless you have some final comments you wanted to make wrapping up. That was fun, Jim. Thanks. Yeah, this is really good. I enjoy it very much. I strongly recommend the book, and thanks for being on the show. All right, great. Bye-bye. Production services and audio editing by Jared Janes Consulting. Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com.